0: So I I go to a couple different barbershops depending on what city I'm in, but but in Philly I go to barbershop same barbershop since I was a kid, since I was old enough to pick my own barber. And so this is when I tend to see people who I grew up with. You know, a lot. Some of them work. A lot of them just came home. Uh, Some still sell dope. You know, or do other. You know, other stuff to survive. These ain't the most emotive or. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you know I mean, this is like, yeah. So, and it, it it was crazy, right? Because so when you sit in the barbershop, is music playing or there's video games in the background, there's sports in the background. It's only a couple things that can happen, right? <laughs> and the music wasn't on for this day. I, I think the speaker wasn't working. Or my barber was Raimi. Just he wasn't doing whatever with the music. It was it was somewhat quiet for a minute, and a car pulled up outside, and it was playing Beyonce "Level on Top," right? <laughs> and. I happen to love that song and I, and it was all for, I mean, I don't know if the car was the light, I don't know if it was pulled over. I don't know, but we could, the song was going for a solid 45 seconds. And when I looked around, everybody was starting to nod their head and you can see everybody like feeling really good about this song is niggas was like singing the words on the low, <laughs> but then you saw everybody look at each other and catch themselves and then everybody busted out laughing. You know what I mean? Like, Oh shit. And, and what I realized at that moment was, it's like, it was like for like five seconds, all the cool poses, all the hyper-masculine shit. We didn't have to pretend we wanted to hear DMX. We didn't have to do none of that. <laughs> Niggas wanted to hear Love on Top and liked it. And, and clearly I've been listening to it because they knew the words. You know what I'm saying? And it was okay. Now, we went back to talking shit. I'm sure somebody said some misogynistic shit, you know, 60 seconds later. But in that moment, we were, like, free. Mm. For, like, a, I don't know if it was 10 seconds, 50, but for, for we were free.
1: Yeah.
0: And that shit felt amazing.
1: I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, Being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. We started this episode with the idea of talking about the barbershop as a place that can sometimes be toxic and violent to gay and queer Black men. But as these conversations progressed, the barbershop became a larger idea, a metaphor for complex public space some public spaces are life-giving, and some threaten our lives. The barbershop is a space that is imbued with the possibility of community, self-definition, and care. But it is often just that, a possibility. Some barbershops have not yet been fully realized as affirming spaces, because a space is only as transformative as the ideas we people it with. And when we walk into those doors, we still carry with us so many notions that pull us apart from each other and from ourselves, the historical role of the barbershop, but more importantly, the people who occupied it and the ways in which it was used to positively shape civic culture, Professor Quincy Mills. So in your book, you you write about the ways that the modern black barbershop joined black churches, black beauty shops, and the black press to anchor the black public sphere in the 20th century. And one of the ways it did that was through civic engagement. Barbershops become a space for which folk can engage and connect. Can you talk a little bit about that? And perhaps the examples of barbers are folk within the sort of narrative who required their customers to do things like register to vote or get active or involved in their communities, who wanted to talk about politics in their shops. Yeah, so thank you for that question. I like to think
2: about barbershops as spaces with three constituents of people. Barber, the customer in the barber's chair, and folks who I call the waiting public, who are sitting in the waiting chair, either waiting to get into the customers, and into the, the barbers chair, or simply just there to, to hang out and talk. And so, as we know, if you get a group of people together, <laughs> they will talk about all sorts of things. And certainly, however the space is organized may dictate the kinds of things that people can talk about. Whether we're talking about folks on the street corner, in a park, in a school cafeteria, on the quad of a college campus. And historically, it's been the case in Black barbershops. It's important to sort of start by saying that barbershops themselves don't do anything. It's the people inside them that do the work. And so barbershops are not inherently democratic, egalitarian spaces. Mm. It's the barbers and the customers who help to make it that way. And so historically, barbers who were politically active often used their barbershops as an extension of their activism. And barbershops like churches, beauty shops, because they owned the space, it was their space, they had some some autonomy, because they didn't report to a white employer, because their customers were not white, that they were able to, to use the space however they they chose. And so there are many barbers in the 1950s and 60s who, particularly in the South, who invited the students from SNCC to use their their shops as organizing spaces. There was a barber uh, named William Lomax in Richmond, Virginia, who had a sign in his shop that said, if you don't vote, then don't talk politics in here. Mm. It was easier for African-Americans in the urban South to Register to vote than in the rural South, and so that sort of led him to say, look, you you can actually go pay your poll tax and get registered, and so don't sit around here talking about how things should change if you're not actually doing anything to, to help make that change. And again, since he owned the space, he can make those kinds of declarations.
1: Continuing that tradition of civic participation and advocacy, Lorenzo Lewis, The Confess Project. You know, I always
3: tell people that, you know, barbershops are, you know, like this historical place in our communities. One of the oldest historical institutions outside of the Black church. And so we really got to think about, you know, what that significance brings in the civil rights era and in the era of social justice and, and, Particularly, just bringing in the era of everyday life for for Black people to show up and be their whole selves, and so you know that that space is is very profound. I think in a lot of ways of you know not only economic mobility and, and building generational wealth, but people's mental health, their well being, and a place where you can experience joy with with no barriers that are involved. And, and I don't know many places in America that has that setting that you can absolutely be Black, experience joy, and be able to use that to propel any part of your journey in life.
1: And tell us a bit about Confess Project.
3: So the Confess Project is a national grassroots movement that is committed uh, to building a culture of mental health uh, for young middle color, boys and their families. And we do this work by training, organizing, community and movement building, by training barbers to be mental health advocates. And at the epicenter, it is storytelling. It's also teaching the skills of advocacy. barbers being great listeners, being able to reduce stigma, being able to validate people's response. These are just critical ways. They're very, very unique. It takes not a whole lot of time to practice them, and you can literally change a lot of lives.
1: The Black Barbershop, as a response to the structural violence in the public sphere, a place to offer different ideas of ourselves, for some of us. The ways in which the spaces that protect can also do significant harm. Mark Lamont Hill, TV host, author, and activist. You know, we think about the barbershop both as a literal space and a metaphorical one, a metaphorical landscape for civic discourse, for kinship, for financial and political autonomy, et cetera, how would you describe the Black barbershop, particularly through the lens of what it has made possible and the possibilities it has yet to realize?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I, th- I think about the work of people like uh, theorists like Nancy Frazier. I think about the writing work of people like uh, Melissa Harris, uh, Perry, then Lacewell, when she wrote the book Barbershops, Bibles, and BET. And, and I think about the idea of the, of the-, the barbershop as a counter-public. Mm-hmm. There's this idea that theorists, you know, German theorists like Habermas and such talked about, about the, the, the public sphere. And the idea was that the public sphere was this place where people could come together and they could share ideas. They could challenge the state. They could develop new identities. It was an inclusive, democratic place. And it was, except the bourgeois public sphere didn't include poor folk it didn't include black folk it didn't include women it didn't you've gone down the list of, of again people who weren't considered people when they said all people could be here yes and so part of what we had to think about were one what are the spaces where black folk convene against the violence of the public sphere right against the places where you couldn't be but also what kind of interesting things happen in those places and so for me the barbershop is an interesting counter public right it's not secret it's not hidden it's not underground it's just a place that responds to the structural violence of the public sphere. And so when we go into the barbershop, we can be somebody else. Mm-hmm. We can offer different ideas, different identities. We can tell different truths. We feel safe, we feel welcome, we feel loved. Black churches serve that function as well. But as we know, while those are places that make you feel safe and whole and mm-hmm. and, and, and make you feel protected, there are also places, They are simultaneously places that do considerable harm, mm. you know? Um, for every voice that gets heard, there's new silences. Mm-hmm. I would argue that there are no, there's no such thing as a safe space or there's always a power dynamic. Some places are safer, but there's still something at stake at all moments. And so when you're in that church feeling good because the same woman who couldn't be called Miss or Mrs. in the Jim Crow South can now be called Miss or Mrs. or can also be a deaconess or mother, that's great, you know? The same person who's called boy is now seen as human. Mm-hmm. But you also have to listen to the preacher tell you that you're going to hell mm-hmm. if you are queer. You also have to have your your body policed, your dress policed. When physical harm comes to you in certain hands, we're told to be quiet because there's a bigger thing at stake. right? Mm-hmm. We have to intake the- theologies that tell us that uh, our prosperity will come through neoliberal capitalism wealth gain not even sometimes for ourselves but sometimes for our preacher if we get our preacher a jet you know we might be all right come on you know what i'm saying so so this is all happening in the same place that still is safer than the white evangelicals who tell me that that i'm not even from god Mm -hmm. or who may not even welcome me in right it's still safer than 10 other places i could be so the black barbershop especially for black men is like that You know, you go in the barbershop, you feel welcome, you feel loved, you feel whole, you feel safe, you feel good, you know? And yet, (laughs) there's so much pain. There's so much trauma that never gets addressed, never gets treated, right? We can sit in there and talk all kinds of shit about whatever happened with us, with our wives, our girlfriends, our whatever last night, but we still can't talk about being sexually assaulted Mm. in the barbershop, it's not safe for that. It's not safe to talk about our fears or our anxieties. It's not safe for that. And it's not safe to be a counter voice. You know, one of the difficult challenges I have being in the barbershop is when I'm sitting in that chair and somebody says some wild shit.
1: Ugh, come on.
0: And you got to make choices at all (laughs) moments about how you're going to deal with it, right? Sometimes you intervene and say, "Nah, bro, come on, man, really," like, and then sometimes you, you you push back harder, like, "Yo, you can't do that," and then sometimes you don't say anything, mm-hmm. and sometimes we convince ourselves that our silence is strategic and tactical, and sometimes we're just being we're just being cowardly, mm-hmm. and and all of it is part of what it means to be in these spaces that are safe but not safe. That's right. And and so the work that needs to happen in the barbershop, I think, just like it needs everywhere else, is that we need to muster a new kind of courage and a new kind of vision for what's possible, even among Black men.
1: A complex understanding, maybe even compassion, for our silences. Listen, I'm sitting here thinking about the many times that I chose to be silent in barbershops in a lot of occasions. Some of it was out of fear. Some of it was out of just uh, convenience. And on some occasions, I I was silent even when the violences that were occurring in my presence were deeply, deeply impacting me. You know Mm. what I'm saying? And it's like it's a really complex situation and I'm I'm, I'm deeply uh, empathic with what that feels like when we're in these spaces that have been so hyper, like shaped by hyper-masculine ideas and expression and the ways that we've been shaped by that and how so often like a, a, a tactic that we use sometimes is silence. It just is. And, you know, and I, I want to be clear that I think that it's okay for us to name that because it breaks apart this idea that to be a man, quote unquote, is somehow to not be unafraid, is mm. somehow to not sort of show up with trepidation, is somehow, you know, like that is also like, if we are to be fully expansive human persons, those feelings, those responses are also ours too. Yeah. And I think it's worth naming, like sometimes we are scared. It's a scary thing to live in the world And push back against the very tools, the very weapons that have been used, right, to structure our being. It's scary to stand up, even within gay spaces, and be like, y'all, we got to stop being, you know, trans antagonistic, right? (laughs) Like, that's scary shit. It takes courage. It takes courage. And that's okay. But you're right. I love this idea of um, what that requires is a type of self-reckoning. And that is hard work. It can be scary to question from within, to interrogate the very spaces and institutions that in some ways have provided respite and protection, but the ability to examine, to question, and in doing so to transform is what makes us stronger. Professor Quincy Mills. You use the word sanctuary,
2: which, you know, whenever we make something sacred, then that means it's unquestioned, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And I remember being in church and questioning the Holy Trinity when I was a teenager, and everybody said, "What are you What are you asking these questions for? It's the Bible. It's the Trinity. That's that's the that's the core of Christianity. There's nothing to question. It's sacred. And it just didn't make sense to me. I had questions. I wanted some answers. It actually caused me to sort of leave the church in that way because no one wanted to, no one wanted to ask questions or, or ask or answer questions by making the barbershop a sacred space in some ways it prevents us from questioning it and it prevents us from transforming it. I understand the nature of sacredness, particularly within Black communities, because white folks have tried to destroy much of Blackness and Black culture throughout history, right? Mm -hmm. And so claiming sacredness to barbershops to say that, look, these are one of the few spaces that we have, let's not, let's not destroy it. I think that changing doesn't mean dis- destruction, yes. I think there's there's still something good there, right mm-hmm. that you know, if indeed we just sort of open things up a bit and look at again, how these spaces could be used and how people within them can make use of them, I think that would be really fantastic. And again, I think that there are folks doing some really interesting work inside of barber shops.
1: The barbershop can continue to be a place for us to fight for social justice, a space to daringly revisit our past, our rigid conversations of sexuality, and the ways in which it can help us to heal. Lorenzo Lewis. How do you think we can use the barbershop as a space to talk about HIV and other health conditions?
3: You know, I think that um, at the root of storytelling, we know that that's pretty much a good foundation to start from. But I also think that... um, you know we have to be inspired but we have to be understanding that we know sexuality plays a huge part into the social justice movement and if i talk about access you talk about a lot of the systemic issues that really underlie there around you know hiv and and, and health in general and so when we start to think about that and even to take it a step further, to think about masculinity in the ways that we were, you know, kind of taught to to, uh, to 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 take over women's bodies and all these other perceptions, we really got to get to the root of starting to think through it through that lens, so we can understand what you know, how this epidemic have come about around HIV, and I think that's important. Is that we have to be daringly ready to visit our past in a way where we know it's important that it's going to help us move. To the places we want to go in our life, and I think that's that's what's helped me to understand this, even in my own personal struggles of what I've had with um, you know promiscuous dating and experiences, all of, in my in my journey as, as well. And so I think it's it's just important that we revisit that, but no, it's not for trauma sake; it's for mm. for healing and to go, to go forward.
1: Spaces like barbershops, where men from so many different backgrounds can be present creates a tremendous opportunity for deeper kinship and understanding. But we must allow space for our differences, even as we acknowledge the common struggles that we all were against, particularly in our visions of freedom. Mark Lamont Hill. You just be making me laugh. <laughs> and it's smart. It's is totally yo. Um, I also want to be respectful of your time, so we can just jump in and make sure you have time back. Let's start with this. You have a really strong and powerful belief about the intersection of our freedoms, their dependencies, reciprocal solidarity. You've spoken for and fought for the freedom of others with passion, and sometimes a great cause to yourself. Um, I'm thinking about all the work you've done in solidarity with our Palestinian family, in the gay and queer and trans black community, women's right and safety. What drives you to do that? What do you think the relationship between our freedoms hold
0: mm. in terms of its power? Yeah, it's it that's a great question. Part of it is an ethical choice that I make or an ethical imperative. I feel ethically compelled to fight for and with everybody who's vulnerable. It's just how I was raised, it's, it's, it's how I see the world. It, it, it's it's what my heart drives me to do. Like, it, it doesn't take convincing for me to do that. And it, and I don't think that I'm special in that way. I think, you know, I think a lot of folk, but especially black folk understand that even if we don't always have the resources or the time or the luxury of extending ourselves in 10 directions, I think that's our impulse, right? We, we want justice for everybody. The other part of it is, an analytical one, and a theoretical and, and political choice that I'm making. That is to say, I don't. It's not just a lefty cliche to me. I actually don't think we can all get free unless everybody is part of that project. I don't think that I can be free as a black person in the United States if Palestinians are unfree. I can't be free as a as a cis person if my trans sibs are not free. It, 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 part of that is because I think, as Paulo Ferry talked about, there's there's a way that the oppressed are catching hell, but, there's, but the oppressors are never fully human either. Mm. They can't realize their full humanity while all this stuff is going on. But some of it is about political power and solidarity. I, I, don't, I think the only way to defeat the powerful is to come together. And so for me, it's as much moral and ethical and philosophical as it is practical. Coming together for our communities,
1: but also for our families, a literal brotherhood, love, and the ways that our narratives give power to others lorenzo lewis how do we create spaces that feel that every black male per, identif, however identified can show up and feel like they too are part of that collective that they too are space what do those spaces does need in order for them to feel safe for queer and gay men
3: you know i, I love that you've asked that question because i've pondered on Really want to share this story public about uh, my interaction of what I've had with my oldest brother who also is a Black gay man. And so understanding that my family and how we uh, opposed him went against him for how he wanted to show up. And now in my adult life, understanding the work that I'm doing that I had to really um, work on m- making their relationship strong um, and to forgiving myself for not knowing better and now being able to give him the love as he is my brother, and I love him. And to be able to also accept the way he shows up in his life and the decisions he wants to do for himself. And I think that's that's helped me to break through to have that power to now using that story to tell us out of barbershops. Yes. And so that is, in fact, a narrative that we have to talk about narrative building, we have to talk about messaging, we have to talk about stories in regards of me being a heterosexual man from the South, understanding that other men need to hear me say that. Mm -hmm. And that's regardless of how they show up because that in fact, what breaks the barriers. That helps to really build community. And I'm I'm glad that I'm at a place where I can do so, right? And so I think that's really important as well.
1: So who do we become? How do we turn a radical possibility of these spaces, these counterpublics, into a reality?
0: We love to pretend that we're something we're not. And and so we have to look at all the spaces of unfreedom that exist, not just at the juridical level, not just the legal stuff. But like, what does it mean to think about the church as a place that really you can't be queer? Right, public space. Right, what does it mean to be think about the barbershop? as a place where you can't even like listen to R and B pop or pop song. You know what I'm saying? You can't. You have to let go of that kind of masculinity. But then we also have to think about it even in terms of the spatial realities of the city. For example, if you look at the street, the corner. You know, bell hooks and others have talked about this. The corner is not a place for women. The corner is not a place for trans folk. The core and, and it's not just in the lens of of black society. It's also through the lens of the state, right? If if we see three three brothers on the corner, we say, oh, they chilling. You see a black woman walking standing on the corner, oh, she's buying drugs. Oh, it's sex work. Trans folk, oh, it's sex work. There's a very particular way that we have policed the boundaries of the physical of, of our built environment, such that if you see women in certain places, we don't allow it. We see trans folk in certain places, we don't allow it. Maybe not legally, again, but but in in, in a in a way that that speaks to what our our cultural rituals and practices are. So we got to be honest about where people can't be. Then after we do that, then we can start to be intentional about recalibrating. We have to be intentional about rebuilding. But that begins with the reimagination. Like, what kind of world do we want it to look like? And hence the freedom dream, right? Then the whole point of the freedom dream is is the kind of audacity of it. Oftentimes is that we have to be able to imagine a world that is not yet. And, and, And the world that is not yet for me is a world where people's full humanity is recognized where the various identities, the various roles, the various desires that we have aren't seen as social demerits. And I think that's why the abolitionist vision for me is so critical. For me, abolition isn't just about tearing down prisons and and getting rid of police. It's an affirmative vision of a world that sees people as people and wants to restore people in the various ways they've been harmed. It doesn't talk about, abolition for me isn't just about the world we don't want, which is what we often focus on because we have to politically. But it's also about being articulate about the world we do want to produce, about the worlds we want to build, about what we want to create.
1: Love that. What's your freedom dream about the spaces we can create for for Black men? And freedom dream is is a term that I often pull from Robin D.G. Kelly, who's an amazing scholar. But when you think about spaces we can create for Black men, what's your freedom dream? And I, I'm thinking about spaces that exist everywhere they are behind beyond the walls of the barbershop. Wow, you know that's a, <laughs> probably the first time I've ever heard it
3: asked that way. You know, my freedom dream is that we can all really be free and really liberated in a way that may not have ever been told we could be. And I think a lot of this is just being able to not just say we're unapologetic, but to really say we can be raw and uncut. And I think that's the version of ourselves that we need to give. Because in fact, when we do so, we do become the better version of ourselves. And in fact, when we know that we can show up in a place and um and 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 really not have to code switch and, <laughs> and not have to try to play through the lines of any type of political dogma or whatever the case may be, that we really can in fact be free. And what do you think we need in order for those
1: spaces that we exist in to feel that way?
3: I think we have to have a collective of trust and vulnerability across multiple layers of different socioeconomic backgrounds and different just a different lifespan, So I think that's from young to old, to um, the community leaders, to the barbers, to families, to the school principal, right? I think we really have to think about it in a wide range of opportunities. Because one thing about a barbershop that's really unique is that you can have the neighborhood dope boy and you can also have the principal in the same setting at the same time. (laughs) And that's really powerful. And you talk about being raw uncut and being you know, um, very open, these are really how we got to talk about building a collective and what we must know as a beloved community. And when we, in fact, can do all of this in one set.
1: Creating room for each other and leading each other into vulnerability. Being willing to take the risk and let go of the fear. Mark Lamont Hill.
0: In order for the barbershop to be fully safe, that moment of freedom we felt when we were all singing Love on Top for them 10 seconds, we would need to find a way to sustain that, to extend that, to allow that to be a vulnerable space where even when we catch it, that's what we're doing, we still keep going. That we say, you know what, sing that verse. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And be okay with it. And and, and so similarly, at that moment of vulnerability in the barbershop, as we're telling stories, we keep going, right? Yo, my chick made me so mad last night because she said this, 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 and this. That story's permissible. But then we catch ourselves. Because the next line might be, she made me feel insecure. She made me feel inadequate. She made me feel unloved. That's the part we can't say. That's the part where we stop. And so for the barbershop to be the safe space, we have to create room for each other to do that. That means that those of us who are in a a space of comfort with that, at least a little bit, none of us are all there, have to be willing to kind of shepherd that conversation. Be able to say, oh, say more about that. Yo, did it make you feel like this? Or I'll tell you this, when when it happened to me, this is how I felt. And I know we don't say that shit, but we got to right taking it there and leading that conversation, being willing to look like the crazy dude, being being willing to take the jokes, being willing to, to take all the shit that's going to come with leading that conversation. Just like taking the lead and being, yo, you can't say the F word in my shop. Right. This that, The same kind of lead that it takes. Right. Because as the barber, you're thinking, OK, I I I, th- I think this is wrong or at the very least it harms somebody I love. So if n- for no other reason, that's a good enough reason. But what will they think about me if I say it? That kind of fear is often what polices our behavior, but we got to let that go. Mm -hmm.
1: But it's scary. And it's hard. And it's a risk. And sometimes it can feel like we've already been asked for so much. To carry so much. To question these spaces and ask for more change can feel like an invasion, an attack on something sacred, or maybe just simply an impossibility. Our vulnerability has been weaponized against us for so long. So you can imagine how difficult it can be to believe that it could ever be a strength. But it can be. And if we fight for it, there is so much for us to gain.
0: You get to be free. You get to be human You get to feel good. I'm telling you, them 10 seconds I love on top was like ecstasy in the <laughs> barbershop. I mean, I, I, you know... You get to feel like that a whole lot more. I ain't gonna say all the time, but you get to feel like that a whole lot more. That moment of freedom you felt, where you could, yo, you could do the shit you'd probably do in the shower or at the red light when you know when ain't nobody looking. That shit you do when you roll up the windows, you could be like that all the time. That's the that that's that's the, that's the incentive. Is that so much of what we do to cover this? Whether it's alcohol, whether it's hypersexuality, whether it's shit talking, whether it's church, all, we we do all kinds of shit to avoid this stuff. We don't have to do it no more. We could be free.
1: Being Seen is produced by Harley and & Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Veeve Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.